Welcome to Why in the World. My name is Ben Shepard. If you haven't rated the show five stars yet and you are enjoying the podcast, please get that done. And if you get a bit of time as well, do give us a review also. It does really, really help us out. On to today's guest. His name is Fergus Crawley. The man's story is truly, truly inspiring. And the fact that he just continually strives for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing is something that I do find absolutely amazing. The man has achieved some true, true feats of endurance, and I think you're going to enjoy this episode. It was recorded, by the way, during lockdown remotely, uh, so hopefully in the not-too-distant future we'll get some time to actually sit down with Fergus in person as well. This is Fergus Crawley on Why in the World. How are you, buddy? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Good. Mate, I want to start with kind of why endurance? Why do you love it? Why do you do it? Probably a twofold answer here. Um, one being psychological and one being physical. So I was actually a powerlifter slash meathead. I think it's probably the polite way of saying it. <laughs> for four or five years, um, competed internationally, competed from Las Vegas to Lapland. And best total in competition was 667.5 at Ooh. 90 kilos body weight, I think. So it was a 260 squat, 160 bench. And I think it was a 257 dead on that day. No, it was 247 and I failed 260 on that day. Um, and I did my last competition in 2017 and just kind of had fallen out of love with it. I just didn't enjoy it. I'd gone through traveling an hour each way in London from southwest London to basically up by Wembley to go to the to go to a gym that had the right facilities for me to keep getting stronger. And yeah, I just left that competition thinking, all right, good day out, but not not the buzz that you used to get from it. I just think the um the effort was outweighing the return in some ways. So decided just to take a step back and enjoy training in a bit of a different way for a while. So keeping my top end strength and playing around with things. And then if we that's sort of set the scene for the background, but the psychological side of things is I had always had training as as a bit of a crutch for what was a pretty negative experience from 2014 to 2016. So I started university in 2014, having been a very sociable, outgoing, smiley young man. And just before that, rugby had kind of been taken away from me as a key pillar of my life, as I'd had three concussions in four weeks. So that's game over. Um, (laughs) There's no contact sports for an indefinite period of time, I was told. So overnight, I had my sort of social group, my day-to-day structure, my sense of fulfillment, sense of almost a reward system, either victory or loss that you get at the weekends was taken away from me. So I quickly scrambled to find a solution and that that turned out to be the powerlifting and the general health and fitness. I went to university based on the fact it was the best university I could get into. I um, applied to Oxford but didn't get in and ended up going to Durham, choosing theology as a way of improving my chances of getting into Oxford. However, that didn't work. So ended up basically studying a degree that I wasn't as interested in as my first choice at a university that was still excellent, but it wasn't it it, it wasn't a gamble I'd taken to get there, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and I'd also based my college choice off the fact it was self catering, and I 
was very, very focused on health and fitness and just keep tracking my food because it was a, a good way for me to stay at the right body weight for the competition, the, 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 the sport in which I was competing in. Not really realizing how much of a personality was attached to each individual college at Durham. So the people that I was sort of sharing sharing an apartment with, you could call it, and halls and in general terms, were all lovely people, but I knew very quickly they weren't to be friends for life. And competing in an individual sport doing a course where there weren't many like-minded people with me and in a college where there weren't many people I could sort of call friends other than just friendly acquaintances from the word go had taken me from being in this very close-knit active social circle overnight to feeling a bit lost mm. and I think there was a bit of complacency that set in being at a younger age where I thought things would just figure it figure themselves out and sat on my laurels for a little bit, but ultimately started to slip into what's now been retrospectively diagnosed as quite severe depression. So that was about October 2014, and a lot sort of happens in between then and later on. But it, it, I did end up making friends at a different college, but by then it was sort of towards the end of exam time. Colleges are very insular, so you don't spend much time with people out with your own college unless you really, really make the effort to. Then exams came around, and then no one was really spending much time together anyway, so... I ended up living in Newcastle in second year with friends from my old school based on the fact that I would either be that guy that lived on his own in private halls or I could actually live in a city where there's things to do with people I could actually do things with, which was important to me. So I made that decision and that was good for a little while as a way of just sort of being a bit more interactive, getting a, a bit more of a, a human connection. But again... I wasn't being enormously proactive about getting myself out of this hole. I just kind of assumed things would fix themselves or this is it is what it is. Three years is a pretty insignificant period of time in the grand scheme of the of your life. So when basically just after Christmas time, our, our sort of flat became a little bit less interactive. Sleeping patterns were all off. Some elements of my flat were just sort of in their room watching TV, not really doing anything else. And their courses weren't particularly demanding for them. One of them was hyper intelligent and could kind of just do the bare minimum. And the others were very rugby focused with Newcastle themselves and kind of worked on different timelines to me. So training was a big pillar for me going to and from a gym in Newcastle. And that was basically the crutch that got me through it for a long period of time. But the key thing of this is I was suffering from severe depression the entire time, but never said a word to a single person about it mm -hmm. and would make a, make a very conscious effort to be incredibly smiley, incredibly positive, and not to reveal any what, 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 I, what I considered at the time to be weakness. Um, that went on for an extended period of time. And in honesty, if you'd asked me then what my opinion on mental health, depression, anxiety, etc., was, I would have told you it was a load of bollocks and it was something that weak-minded individuals use as an excuse to get out of responsibility or hard work. And then, in early 2016, I started to be affected physically by my mental health in that I was unable to sleep for days and if I did fall asleep, I'd sleep for about 22 hours I'd be getting split in half at the gym by weights that I'd be able to do with my eyes closed. I couldn't eat, and I just generally had lost all fervor and energy for any sort of movement, any sort of existence. And that went on for a little while, and that scared me so much because it was the first time it actually became quite overwhelmingly real. And you'd think the logical thing at that point would be to 
acknowledge it was real and do something about it, say something to someone, but no. That just pushed me further back into this insular mindset of you can't reveal yourself as exposed or vulnerable. And ultimately, after a week had passed where I realized I hadn't said a word out loud to another human being other than a Tesco cashier or a barista or something, it, yeah, it was, it was a Sunday and I realized that since the Monday, since the Monday morning, I hadn't said another word to a human being. I just felt more alone, more desperate at, at, at that moment in time than I ever had done before and kind of couldn't really see any other way out. So the following week, ultimately, actually attempted to take my own life. And coming around in a puddle of my own vomit and sitting there, my first rage, my first, sorry, my first feeling was of complete rage because the one initiative I'd taken hadn't worked. And I'd not really considered any of the options, and I thought that that, that rock-bottom decision-making was the only solution that there was available to me, and it hadn't provided the solution I'd hoped it would. Ultimately, a few hours passed, and I came around, and then ended up just falling asleep, um, tidied up the room out of the shame of the evidence that people might have actually been able to figure out what had been going on, and... Yeah, went to sleep, and the following day, my one of my friends up in Edinburgh sent me a picture of some French bulldogs and said, I'm getting a, a puppy from this litter, and jokingly said to me, do you, want, do you want in? And at any other time, I would have said, no, I can't do that right now, but given the circumstances, that, that came across as the immediate solution. So two weeks later, I was back down in Newcastle with a 14-week-old French bulldog called Odie, who is now, now <laughs> known as the pig dog, because he snores and acts very much like a little warthog. Um, <laughs> he basically gave me a sense of structure, a sense of responsibility, and a reason to keep existing because his existence was solely dependent on mine. So overnight almost, I allowed, it gave me the opportunity to reclaim a bit of a sense of purpose, which slowly allowed me to chip away a bit of a recovery, I guess we could call it, initial recovery anyway. Just saying things out loud on walks, like kind of just chatting rubbish with my dog, as dog owners will do. I just said things out loud that I'd never actually acknowledged or confronted in person before. And as soon as they were out of my mouth, that slowly allowed me to start to comprehend a little bit more what was going on. Slowly but surely, from then on, I got better. And around Christmas time that year, I ended up opening up to my parents because they basically didn't want a dog and asked, look, why have you sprung a dog on us? This isn't fair. Um, and I, ha- I basically had to explain, look, th- this is why I've got him. It's actually a much more complicated story than you'd imagine. And from then on, that's when I started to really feel like I could reclaim my sense of purpose just by having that initial conversation and opening up to someone about my experience. Because for two years, I had suffered from severe depression, not saying a word to anyone. And then for six months following a suicide attempt, I'd still not said a word to anyone out of the fear that I'd be deemed less of a man I'd let down people's expectations of me my own expectations and the moment I acknowledged it I acknowledged myself as vulnerable as weak as less of the person that I deemed myself to be anyway fast forward from then so that was the start of 2017 through to middle of 2018 so I basically trained after that last powerlifting competition just to enjoy it for a little while whilst working in London for a big brewery in sales and I had kind of been unlucky in my placement in that I was bet- I was part of a bit of a policy change. So I was there to implement a policy, which there was a big lag in terms of 
the actual outputs that I could do. So there were certain things that the company hadn't yet changed in the way in which I could operate, which was stopping me from doing my job. And this went on for about two or three months, being told it'll be done next week. And I was like, okay, well, I'm literally wasting my time here. I'm wasting your time. And it got to the stage where I was sitting in a coffee shop in Brixton, and I just went to went to put my fingers to um to a keyboard, and I was just overwhelmed with this white noise. Just couldn't do any work, and I just shut my laptop and thought, okay, you've been here before. Do the right thing and acknowledge that this is happening, and do something about it. So I decided, right, what were you missing last time when you went down this hole? Fulfillment, sense of purpose, uh, sense of social interaction. Okay, you've got the social interaction at the moment, so that's covered. What you're missing is a sense of fulfillment and a sense of purpose. And I thought, okay, training has been a huge part of my life for a long period of time. At the moment, I'm kind of going through the motions with it. Let's use your training as a way of giving you a sense of purpose. And later that week, I then decided to commit to my first significant Movember campaign, which I decided to be, what are you good at? Squatting. Right. Did a bit of Googling. Lo and behold, end of the week, I decided let's attempt to squat half a million kilos in 24 hours to represent the half a million <laughs> male, su- m- male suicides globally. And I chose Movember partly because they're the only charity in the world with cult status. So I think it's just a bit, it's a bit of a laugh. I mean, the whole reason the charity exists is because, haha, <laughs> moustache, you dickhead. What's that all about? Well, funny you should ask. And then you can actually have a conversation about things that you wouldn't have spoken about otherwise. And that's why I love it so much because it's such a not an icebreaker, but it's it, it's a great it's a great way of removing the barrier to entry for so many men. I saw a lot of that precedent in myself, so that was the that was the direction I decided to go in, and ultimately then left my job and committed three months to a big charity campaign for November, meeting a lot of amazing people along the way. Ended up squatting in front of Harlequins. Um, rugby stadium at half time in front of twelve and a half thousand people being able to tell my story there so the whole thing just ballooned out of control and it became the most fulfilling decision i'd ever made mm. but part and parcel of having to turn my top end strength from my powerlifting into the ability to do it over and over again for such a long period of time involved a much 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 higher endurance base so started running started getting on the watt bike again basically started building up the volume that i'd sort of been more used to when i was younger training for rugby and just doing a bit more health and fitness in general terms and slowly start to fall in love with the self v self tunnel visioned self-analysis that comes with endurance i still remember my first two hour run when i was still a bit of a meathead kind of adjusting to this increase in aerobic output and saw Saturday afternoon, two hour run steady at 140 beats per minute heart rate. And I thought, how the fuck am I going to run for two, <laughs> two hours without stopping? Like, it was unfathomable to me. But yeah. like a lot of people, you, you, when you run without monitoring metrics as you go, you just go full send. And after about 10 minutes, you're like, this is awful. I want to go home. You're sweating buckets and think this is terrible. But tapering it back to a steadier pace allows you to appreciate your surroundings. And actually, you're not so gassed that you can't think. And you can go into that flow state, that sort of state of mind where time just flies by. And all you need to focus on subconsciously is putting one foot in front of the other. You don't need to worry about even kind of the variation in the ground because you're not moving quickly enough for that to be volatile enough to to Mm. sort of compromise you and I um I re- yeah I got I got to I got to an hour and a half and I thought hang on I've done 11 and a bit miles here I'm, I'm gonna end up running a 142 half marathon having not run more than 100 yards 
since playing a bit of sevens here or there. And um, I got in from that and just thought, you know what, the amount of thoughts and things that I just processed along that along the way there was incredible. So it was actually a byproduct of training for something which it was an endurance slash strength focus, but it was a byproduct that taught me how important it it really is to me. So the notion of enduring for me is basically the the amount that we can learn from those periods of adversity. You can replicate that in periods of adversity that you inflict on yourself with training. And it's why I love spending so much time in the mountains for six to eight hours just sort of cruising at 130, 140 heart rate because it's not demanding so much for me that I can't just reflect and contemplate what's going on. My longer runs, my longer cycles are never really fast enough that my I red line and I mean to be honest I'm, I'm, I actually hate high heart rate stuff it just it's not my cup of tea I, I'm still if I do five minutes of really high intensity stuff I'm like I'm so done <laughs> but I, I'd much rather sit on a walk bike for 24 hours and do 10 more yeah. minutes of this like the inadvertent byproduct of training for for that event taught me how important endurance was to me and actually allowed me to learn a lot more about how to balance the two mm. spoiler alert ultimately when I did attempt that, my left knee snapped a little bit, and I sprained my patella tendon, tendon 126,000 kilos in, so just over five hours in. Um, I'd squatted 60 kilos 2,113 times or something, and it was about one in the morning, and my knee just gave in. But I was on the floor in tears with those feelings of failure and masculine sort of you've exposed yourself and let yourself down creeping in then and then I just thought back to the entire process that got me there and how actually it was so meaningless in the grand scheme of things the key thing was that for the first time in my life the process had been more valuable than the end itself that became really important has kind of molded a lot of my decision making now and that the following November campaign I started the process a lot earlier. I took on three events. I made it much more community involved. I made it much more focused. And I just tried to incorporate that sort of sense of endurance into the messaging and into the training a lot more to try and communicate how those self-reflective moments of adversity that you go through, the ups and the downs, the, the I can't do this anymore. It all comes down to this will pass. It's very relevant at the moment as well. No one feeling lasts forever whether that's in day-to-day life or in endurance, you there are peaks and troughs. The peaks can be incredibly high and the troughs can be incredibly low. Yeah, definitely. And at both ends, you'll feel either completely invincible or completely defeated. It's sometimes very hard to see past either or, thinking that this is just the way things are. But it, it's learning to deal with the ebbs and flows and the, the ups and the downs and how you adapt and react within each each of those. So for me, it's... Mm. In training or in, in day-to-day life, when I do have really good periods, I, I acknowledge that, you know what, this is great, make the most of it, but don't get complacent. And then when I'm in the lowest points, it's, you know what, this is awful, but find a way through this and you'll come out the other side a better person in doing so. That's not something that I'd really considered beforehand, and I was much more volatile in the way that I responded to things. I mean, yeah, if I was riding a wave of positivity, I'd probably become quite self-destructive because i just... Yeah, the complacency would set in and I'd, I'd make decisions that potentially could not be the, the right things to do in the bigger picture. And again, mm. when I'm at the lowest period, I'd kind of just put everything else to bed and think, you know what, there's the, the only thing that matters right now is the situation that I'm in and not really think any further forwards. And I think that's why that's why I did um, 
did what I did a couple of weeks ago on the what on the turbo trainer because I think a lot of people have lost sight of the fact that there is light at the end of this tunnel that we're in. We've come an enormously long way as a society. I mean, we've shown, I'd say the UK has probably shown its worst quality along the way. And I'm interested to see how those manifest themselves once this is all over. But I think we have come an enormously long way. We've sacrificed a lot, some much more than others. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky enough not to have been affected directly by the virus or anyone close to me. I'm lucky enough to still be working, but I know that there's there's so much going on. We're all we're all in the same storm, but we're not necessarily in the same same boat. Is, is a way I've heard it described, and I think it's important that people realise that there is light at the end of the tunnel. No one feeling lasts forever. We all have an innate ability to endure. It's learning how to endure and how to process the the journey that is is what what where the skill lies. I think because if you compared my my approach to longer endurance events now to my initial one there's a lot more knowledge and a lot more mindset and a lot more little tricks tips cues and processing things that i i incorporate which aren't particularly innate but they are learned i think we'll all come out of this with a different perception on what's important to us how we fight our way through periods of adversity I think that's the only kind of thing that you can hope for really through this period of time, isn't it? That hopefully we all come out realising what's actually important. Like you've said, I've spoke to a lot of people as well that have said basically that, that they've realised what is important and what isn't important and what's uh, real and what's fake in their lives and what they need to do and what they don't need to do. And I think that's the hope that we're going to come out of this a bit stronger. Mate, there's so much to unpack. I want to go all the way back to to that moment where you said you had the four concussions, you were playing rugby. Um, was rugby something that obviously was important to you growing up? Did you play it from a kid? I was always decent, but uh, to be honest, a lot of that came from the fact that I just developed at a bit of a younger age towards in comparison to everyone else. Yeah. So I was um I played front row until I was about fifteen. And I mean, playing prop, there's not really much you can do beyond doing your job. Um but then moved schools and actually went down a year because I went from a Scottish system school to an English system school and ended up playing in the back row and that's where I sort of came into my own. I was a I was a hundred hundred odd kilos at fifteen years old and I could still move. Whoa. So physics came into play there. Um, <laughs> and then no, so I just I just really enjoyed it. But it's like most rugby players, it became it's it's that sort of sense of brotherhood, sense of structure. And I was at a boarding school structured um school up in Edinburgh, which meant that you it was it was almost a borderline institutionalized day-to-day life which i actually loved because it it gave such structure it gave such clarity there was no gray area in how you used your time and that's something that i've carried forwards now um but when a a, a sort of pillar of that was taken away so there's the academic pillar the, the the sort of recreational pillar and then the sporting pillar and my sporting pillar was bashed out of the way one day and that's a, that's a third of my sort of sense of identity and existence and the two crossed over because, I mean, who you interact with day to day is obviously ingrained within that. And none of that changed, but I, I wasn't a part of the, the training sessions. I wasn't a part of yeah. the games. I wasn't a part of the bus trips down. And I felt very much on the outside. It, it, that wasn't a problem in terms of my own mental health, the social side of things, because it, I mean, I didn't feel left out in any way, other than the fact that I just kind of wanted to be there. But it was the it was the sense of fulfillment and drive, and almost a simple reward system that I, I required. Because 
rugby, as I've said, it's victory or loss. You win the turnover, you don't win the turnover. You you catch you catch the up and under, or you don't. It, it, there's lots of very quick yes or no's, and that's why I sort of fell in love with strength training and just general health and fitness because it was you versus you. And as a beginner, the rewards come thick and fast. And, and when you start, the, the progression happens so quickly, doesn't it? And it's very, it's very obvious and very, you know, the rewards come for you, really, don't they? They come because you're working. And if you put the work in, you're going to reap the rewards. And I think it's a very easy, if you do this, you will get this system when it comes to sort of endurance training. From the place where you, you felt obviously secluded and you were suffering from depression to telling your parents and then doing what you're doing now as almost a spokesman uh, for male mental health, really. How, how did you turn your perspective around? Because you were saying that, you know, you didn't want to say anything because you'd felt it's a macho thing, you need to be okay to squatting in front of that many people at a rugby stadium. Like, it, it's a total polar opposite i think there's there's almost two two step changes to this in that number one was almost forced and that the conversation around christmas time around od being at home was out of necessity rather than being voluntary and that was the first that was the first conversation i'd had with another human being about my experience as i said it came out of necessity which it almost took away the choice in some ways which is is good um, but I appreciate isn't particularly helpful for those that might not be put in a situation where they're forced to open up about it, if that makes sense, because I, I do yeah, understand how difficult it can be to take those first steps. The conversations that I was having with myself and my dog on those walks were getting out there, so I often said to people, if you just write down your internal thoughts or say them into a mirror or even just say them out, say them out loud, you're doing a better job of processing them yourself which is going to get you closer to that end goal of being able to have a conversation with another person about it. So when I when I spoke to my family about it in in my mind that was that was a that was a box ticked and that was as far as I ever needed to go with it. I I've, I've I'd had the conversation. I'd learned to process it a bit better myself. I don't think I'd ever really confronted it properly again. I'd kind of put it to bed and thought you're better now. You've told people probably means they'll be a bit more aware in the future. But that's it. That period of your life is done. You can move on. You can move on. And then when the experience where I sort of started getting the the white noise and the slipping into depression with work in London again, I then realized, okay, this this isn't gone. This is kind of a part of who you are. And you, you, you might be a little bit more susceptible to depression due to your drive and the fact that you need to have a sense of fulfillment. Otherwise, I feel I feel quite purposeless, to be honest. If I, if I don't feel fulfilled, it's... It's quite a self-destructive trait that I have that I, I just can't go through the motions of day-to-day -day life because I feel like I've got more to give, I'm more capable of things, and it, it really can very quickly start to weigh me down. So when I made the decision to take on the world record attempt for November, I said publicly this is for November specifically for men's mental health. And I had no intention of sharing my story publicly when I actually announced what I was doing. But the support that I got from people initially just on the concept and how important it was to talk about these things, how important it was to raise awareness to all this, etc. It was actually such a surprise to me as somebody that had basically been perpetuating this stigma against men as someone who'd suffered from it yeah. in the most twisted way. Like it, it, That was kind of the perspective shift that showed me, like actually, no, 
the way that you perceive things to be isn't the way that they are actually maybe you can do something about this for the sake of other people because there's a lot of people I dislike in this world but I wouldn't wish my experience on my worst enemy and it was it's just the most horrible place to have been and yeah the pain that I've experienced in in challenges and physical things since then is just completely incomparable and I think that's Mm. where the the sense of endurance comes from it fortnight after I announced what I was doing I basically got a press release together with Movember and once it was fully drafted, just sent it to my friend's WhatsApp group. And again, support was completely positive from the start. But did they have any indication of what was contained within that press release? Absolutely not. They were completely shocked because I'd been so good at maintaining appearances and just keeping up with the facade that I'd be able to maintain. Nothing but support. There was a lot of surprise and there was a lot of discussion afterwards whenever we were in person again around how... Almost, almost the thought process I went to being like, but like, what was? Why did you get to that stage? Like everything seemed okay, and I'm like, well, ultimately it was just there was a key part of my life missing, which was that sense of fulfilment, and that, just ignoring that for so long got me into the position that I did. That helped them process some things that they'd been comprehending for a little while. Like I've had some friends that've been in that professional rugby, had some friends that have in a similar sort of mindset to me where it's sort of all all in work as hard as you can their their sense of responsibility and drive is kind of what what keeps them ticking over and if if they're in a bit of a gray area they they don't start to feel too great but then sharing it publicly allowed that to reach sort of my immediate social circle the social circles of my friends at different universities and things and different working groups around the UK and again, the positivity and the support was so encouraging that it just made me decide, you know what, I'm going to wear my heart on my sleeve with all this because I've been wrong. And yeah. I want other people that are also wrong currently to learn the lesson that I've just learned before it gets to the stage that I got to. If I'd had one of my peers sticking their neck out and saying, you know what, actually, I feel the way that you do when I've been suffering the way that I was, I would have thought, holy shit, I'm not alone here. This isn't, I'm not, I'm not a weirdo. I'm, and also there's someone that I can maybe discuss this with and in discussing it, I can process it better and then get myself out of the hole. But I got all the way down to rock bottom before I started to pick up the pieces, which is not needed, mm. not needed. I think male mental health is still stigmatized and and mental health in general is still stigmatized to a certain extent the conversation obviously has been growing a lot over the last few years and i think quite rightly why do you think that there is still that slight stigma around men talking what is it and why is there that perception that men should be big and strong and not talk i think a lot of it's quite traditional in that the biggest challenges and the most challenging conversations that i've had are with those of an older generation not to generalize, I mean, some of them are incredibly understanding. Some of them had their own experiences. But the, the examples I use whenever whenever I've done any public speaking on this, there's, there's two really in that a midlife crisis is something that's kind of been discussed openly and laughed about for years and years and years. Always shaved his head, always bought himself a Ted Baker suit when he's really out of shape, <laughs> when he's really out of shape and doesn't suit it. Oh, he's got a BMW 6 Series convertible. It's been joked about as something for as long as I can remember and... Ultimately, what that is, is a panic about the way in which you spent your life and some sort of reactive decision-making that comes from a place of mental health and a bit of crisis, potentially. And the other example, the more trivial example I use is golf, in that I've played golf for a long time as well, and the amount of times 
60, 80 year olds, any age, anyone has come in and said, oh, how'd you get on? How'd you get on? Oh, I was doing really well until 13th hole. And then I just got inside my own head. Couldn't break par the rest of the game. You're like, so hang on. If that can happen in a game of golf, why on earth can't that happen in your day-to-day life? Like it's, yeah. and that th- that's the sort of thing I've used. Th- th- that's the analogy that actually got my dad on side because he's my my dad runs a runs an independent business, and he's been up against it just in terms of managing so much. Just always it, the nature of any startup, it's just incredibly hard work. And about a year and a bit ago, he said to me, "It's lucky that I'm so resilient and that I don't have mental health." And I said, "I know what you're trying to say, <laughs> but that's not." what the reality of the situation is you do have mental health but as you've touched upon your resilience and your ability to be able to compartmentalize it and work through it and do the right things for the sake of your own your own mental health is what's kept you afloat he's 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 had a few moments where he's had to kind of unload on some things that have been keeping him up at night or just some things that he's needed help with but it was that that was a bit of a turning point for him and one of the big one of the big things was actually, and the most encouraging thing was uh, my twenty two and a twenty two hour fifteen minute nine so ninety four mile run from Loch Lomond to Morrifield Stadium last year um, to represent ninety four male suicides every week in two thousand eighteen. I had just under a hundred people waiting in a room at the end for an event that I'd organised with basically all the local mental health charities and different speakers from different sort of walks of life talking on mental health specifically sort of with me arriving as the, the sort of kickstart to the event i was 15 minutes late bollocks but um <laughs> i think you can get you give yourself that over yeah. 94 miles away. yeah I mean, but it was a, it was a good it was a good way of trying to keep me on track but he the, the majority of that room were i mean it was basically a split between my friends my friends' friends, people that had sort of been local on social media had been interested in what I was doing, and then the majority of them were sort of rugby slash professionals from my dad's network as as he was when he used to work at Edinburgh, and they were just all so passionate, and they all in the discussions I had afterward there there was a nine times out of ten there was a significant moment which made them realize that their perspective had kind of been skewed for a long period of time, yeah. And whether that's losing someone to suicide, losing someone to self-harm, or it just a number of things. There were some somebody had there was there was one story about there's there's a man who started a basically it's called racing awareness, and it was around motorsports and how so many kids and young adults in motorsports basically use it as their escape from their sort of day to day lives. And whilst they're kind of viewed as a bit alternative and a bit punk out there they actually are a really tight-knit community and they've had a lot of a lot of issues with suicide and mental health in general in there but you wouldn't think that because they're petrol heads who seem really really sort of hard almost because they're they're the ones taking the risk that the majority of people wouldn't be willing to take and he said it was um it was a conversation he had with a young driver who basically said that he he feels the thrill it, it was something to the effect of the thrill he feels from racing is the closest thing he feels to actually any sense of purpose in life because it, he said the the feeling that he can die at any any moment doesn't scare him because he doesn't feel he's got anything to live for and he said that that was the most harrowing the harrowing the harrowing thing he'd heard and yeah for my dad it was hearing my story and my perspective on it but me learning how to frame it better and describe it a little bit better helps help him process it a bit more but 
Yeah. Then hearing people of his age explain their stories, and actually, it's the familiarity thing that which we which we discussed before. It, it's if you see familiarity in someone else's story, you can better process your own. And this stigma comes from a place of tradition: British stiff upper lip, men don't cry, boys will be boys, don't show your emotions because that makes you weak. And this this impending fear of anything you reveal that does that is it, contrary to that might have a negative effect on you professionally, negative effect on you socially. Experience wins the war here in that it's a sad thing that it takes a bit of a traumatic conversation or a bit of a traumatic experience to actually see it otherwise. But the more superficial and simple conversations that people are having are actually helping frame and process this conversation a bit more day by day. Like my, my, my granny now, for example, is so much more understanding of I mean, she's used the example of our, I mean, she won't be the only one, but we lived through war. And yes, the suicide rates were higher then than they are now. And they're, they're on the rise again now. And it's, it's, not, it's not that they didn't happen. It's just that they weren't acknowledged because it was amidst a much higher crisis and it wasn't discussed. But I think the openness is really important because it just helps provide the parameters for people to understand their own story and therefore remould their perspective a little bit with the understanding that this guy, for example, Scott Hastings, who's a rugby commentator, he was he was yep. sort of comparing my my event at Murrayfield, and his wife's very open about her battles with mental health, and they're very open publicly, and actually a key parts of a um, health and mind charity in Scotland. And he's, I mean, he's a public figure. He's someone that is he's a British lion, and he's. Played, his, played for his country with Gavin. They were infamous in Scotland and around the UK as the, this dynamic duo. They are still in the public eye. They're figures of strength. They're rugby players. They're fathers. And there they are standing there saying, you know what? It's not all what it seemed all the time. And the more... The, I mean, Tyson Fury, for example, another great example. Literally a mountain of a man, an absolute brute who could knock you out and probably kill you with a single punch. <laughs> w- wouldn't... like In terms of the physical strength and the ability to fight... He is as high as they go in the United Kingdom. Yet here he is saying that counts for nothing if you're not stable on the inside. And I think it's the disparity between strength of mind and strength of being that um, is where people have struggled to make the make the distinction. But as you've said, the past couple of years, the amount of just openness and honesty that's going with the whole process and the, the sort of male mental health movement is helping those that do still have that traditional stigmatized perception to to move away from it it's that relatability right as well like you've said like seeing these people that are in the public eye and these figures of strength talking about their stories and sharing their experiences it makes it much more relatable to people that might be feeling the same which i think like you said is only ever going to be a good thing where you're at now you rack up these events you're doing things back to back to back to back to back quite a lot of the time do you worry at all that if that was taken away through injury or something else that you may start slipping again and have you got things in place if that were to happen yes excellent question and one that one that a lot of people have actually been quite afraid to ask me recently actually um because I think people don't want me, or are almost worried that I don't want to acknowledge that. And I I am aware that there is a ceiling to how far I can push this sort of thing. I mean, I'm still working full time. So there is a balancing act between, I mean, how much time do I actually have to give in a day? 
Um, but alongside that, there is a bit of a physical ceiling and that there's no point in wrecking myself for the sake of a cause that might actually... I, I mean, I don't want to be a sacrificial lamb. There's, there's no point mm. in that. That doesn't yield anything. Um, but one thing that I... I mean, I've confronted a little bit more recently because the reason I'm down in the Northwest rather than up in Edinburgh is because we've got a, we've got a gym in the house. And when the lockdown was announced, um, I came down here because I was acutely aware that I spend, I mean, I spend upwards of 50, sort of 15 to 20 hours a week training, like a significant portion of my time. And to not be able to do that to the best of my ability would, it kind of, kind of, it didn't scare me, but I just thought, you know what, that wouldn't be the best thing for your mental health right now with everything else going on. So if you can keep, if you can keep a few things as normal as possible, great. Um, but now that we're, we're sort of a couple of months down the line, I'm yeah I'm aware that had I not had access to this I it, it, it's tied up in my identity a little bit to the point where yes I'd be able to adapt and I would be able to overcome it in that I just would be doing more running and more more riding and more swimming yeah, etc and things like that but in the bigger picture I'm very methodical in the way in which I plan my year plan my future and yeah this this didn't fit the plan so the deviation would have been what knocked me for six a little bit at the start but I think it's important what you said is what, what contingency plans do I sort of have in place and the big one is always knowing that I'm very self-aware of the feelings of actual what, what discerning between what's just a bad day what's just a bad mood what's a stressful week and what is actually sort of the onset of depression and I do have things that I can implement there to help me in the same way that with endurance there's so many things that I hold back until I need them. Like, I, I don't run with headphones because I want to hold off on them until they are, like, a critical trick up my sleeve. <laughs> I'm the same. Me. Exactly. Yeah, same. yeah, 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 yeah. And it's um, it's it's the same way I approach my life in, in that if I'm ever feeling lethargic in the morning or feeling like I'm not getting enough done in a day, then all I'll do is just set my alarm an hour earlier in the morning and fight through that first morning, get my training done in the morning, whatever it is, whether it needs to be done in the morning or not. Because a lot of the time I can just do it in the evening. There's no real merit to me doing it first thing. And sometimes I benefit from the extra sleep. But I get up, I do it, and I, I get that feeling of accomplishment done before I start my working day. I get to the end of the day and I suddenly feel like a completely new person because I've got, I feel like I've accomplished so much in such a short period of time and that's enough of a reset to allow me to do that for a week or two. And that, at the moment, for the past couple of months, that's been what's really sort of kept me fighting the cycle of ups and downs. An injury, there'll always be a way for me to overcome it. I'm creative, and I mean, unless it was a broken spine or something, but there's always a way for me to to reframe what I'm doing. And I think now I'm at the stage of my life where I know what's important to me and I know yeah it comes back to those pillars really and that training is a pillar of my life but so is girlfriend dog future planning with all that so is the ability to be able to impact people's lives through sharing my own story and if one of those pillars is taken away then I can reframe the other two to sort of fill the gap a little bit it wouldn't be the end it wouldn't be it wouldn't me be it wouldn't require me to sort of feel completely miserable but I think it, I'd be I'd be gutted if that was the case yes it of would course. it would certainly deviate the plans but I'm aware now I mean with what I've got planned this year and what I've got planned the year after there are so many variables that it would be incredibly naive and arrogant of me to think that nothing's gonna go wrong well there's a tease there's a tease <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> that's as far as I can go on that at the moment although the pro- <laughs> 
the rest of the afternoon is kind of um, the big <laughs> the stage two of the process. Um, yeah. But it's, I mean, it, that's what the, 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 when I attempted to, so for anyone that might not know, I, I attempted to sit on a turbo trainer for 49 hours on the first bank holiday in May because I wanted to just try and give people, I basically tried to, to provide a little metaphor for exactly what we've discussed so far, which is the ability to endure and how much fight we have to give. So 49 was to represent how many days we would have been in lockdown from the 23rd of March to the 10th of May, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was. And yeah, the whole point of it was for for people to really truly consider what's important to them, acknowledge how far we've all come, acknowledge how far we've sacrificed, and to try and find their version of what light at the end of the tunnel is. Because I feel like we almost as a society haven't acknowledged that we are all individuals in this and that different thing, different things are important to different people for different reasons. And it's okay for you to have different interests to other people at the moment. And I just wanted to, to encourage people to really take the time to consider what was important to them through my suffering on the bike, basically. And I wasn't raising money for a singular charity. I was encouraging people to donate to a charity of their choice or to just give me an example of one action that they're going to take as a result of my efforts on the bike. And I received sort of just under 200 messages of what people were doing, ranging from putting five quid towards a house deposit because that's all that they could do but that house deposit number was really important to them as a measure of sort of how well they were doing to someone that went on the, a 75 mile bike ride having only got a, a road bike two weeks beforehand so it was kind of everything and and yeah I mean people donating to charities of their choice because their mum was currently suffering from the coronavirus or something along those lines so they donated the local COVID appeal anything that, so it was really encouraging for me there but the point is I set off with the aim of doing 49 hours. Five hours in, as we discussed before this started, the, the position on the turbo trainer, because I hadn't spent that much time on my tri bike on the turbo trainer rather than outside. I spent a lot of time on it outside, but there's a lot more variables. There's inclines, there's standing up, there's, there's general changes of position. which Just moving on the bike. Ex- exactly, which doesn't reveal any tiny little millimeters of difference from that repetitive strain. So I think... With hindsight now, my ham- it, it, about six hours in, it felt like my hamstring was going to come off the bone. And it did for about three hours. And I, I, I became consciously aware that, you know what, maybe this isn't going to be the way things go. Played around with my position a little bit, did a few things differently, and managed to subside the pain enough that I could carry on. And ended up getting through 24 and a half hours with a, with a pretty goosed hamstring, which was the aim. But I, I called it short just before I caused myself an actual injury. Because as we discussed... I don't want that. And there was no point in me doing that for the sake of proving a point, really. There were so many variables at play. One of them went wrong. Like, there's yeah. nothing I can do about that. It's something that was out of like my life. control. It's like life, yeah. isn't it? That's yeah. the thing. Like, there are so many variables. And like you said, in this situation as well, there are so many variables and every person is an individual. And sometimes you're going to have to... You know, your situation has to be malleable. These things have to be malleable. Sometimes you're going to have to say, look, I can't do this. It's it's going to hurt me in the long term. And sometimes you're going to be able to complete exactly what you wanted to do to the head, to the T. So it's just about changing where you have to. There's luck, isn't there? There's an element of luck um, in that, that that's the first time I felt like it was an issue that I couldn't overcome. Um, after a certain, I mean, I, I adjusted, but it never sort of provided a solution. So I did what I could with what I had left to work with and got through 29 and a half of the 49 planned hours. 
Um, I'm not disappointed. Well, I'm disappointed in the sense that I said I'd do one thing and didn't do it. But at the end of the day, what I've taken from that, suffering for 24 and a half hours with a compromised hamstring is probably more valuable for my psychological sort of conditioning than yeah. getting through the 49 hours without any compromises. Because it's, I, I've often discussed with people like, I'm very, I'm, I've learned to be good at suffering through adversity on my own terms. But I've never had someone pla- if someone planned if someone planned my events th- for me, just told me to turn up at a time and do this, do that. I, it'd be much harder because I wouldn't have been able to to sort of plan, mitigate, provide contingency. And at the end of the day, our jobs, our relationships, etc., we are not completely in control. So it's actually good that we get thrown curveballs every once in a while because we learn how to how we process them internally, how we adapt, what our reactive capabilities are. And if they're not good to start with, the only way you're going to know that is by learning and then by sort of analyzing your responses and then moving forwards from there. Um, And for example, what I'm planning this November will sort of be eight to 10 days of continuous effort. Spoiler. Um, But it will, I mean, I, I got off the bike and my first thought was, there's just no way that you can do that. If this is, you've not got through 49 hours, like that's nothing in comparison. But then I thought, actually, no, you've been compromised and got through an entire day in a in a negative position on your own, spontaneously. I mean, I put, I put this together in a week and a half. Um, spontaneously, on your own, on a bank holiday, during a crisis, way too hot, on a bike you're not used to, with no one else doing the event with you, nobody covering this except you yourself. So it's there were so many things, so many like tricks left up the sleeve to make to, to give me the power to see things through. That actually, I thought, you know what, this has been a really valuable exercise and a really valuable stepping stone towards the the things I want to achieve in the next couple of years. I think it's quite interesting what you said about uh, turn. If someone was to plan your events and you just had to turn up and do them, you wouldn't. It wouldn't be as much like fun. I think it's the. I think it's that. It's the investment in it as well, isn't it? It's these things that you've created yourself, and I think that's a massive part of it. And compromising yourself for 24 hours and still getting through 24 hours if anybody listened to this was watching any of the live streams or the instagram lives or anything like that you could see the considerable amount of pain that you were obviously in and i think it almost had more impact than if you were just kind of chilling at 18 hours in and you'd be like yeah this is all right actually like there was some obvious hardship that you were going through and i think people are going to you know, relate to that hugely. And you can see that by the impact you were having on people through, you know, you you sharing Instagram stories that people were sharing with you. And like you said, the messages and things like that. And you've said as well that it is kind of a, a pillar of your life at the moment, this impacting other people. How does it feel when you see these people who you are impacting? It's a, it's a key part of what I now deem important to me long-term in that if you ask me what what sort of career aspirations I have beyond the position I'm in now the overarching sort of principle would be I'd like to be able to have an impact on other people's lives and whether I mean whether that's a separate to my professional career whether it's not it doesn't really matter because I, I know how valuable it would have been for me in the situation that I was in having someone with that familiarity um and it is it is rewarding but I kind of don't view it as it's not it's not rewarding in the sense of sell. It's not like a the same feeling I get from completing a completing an event. Like it's not as self-driven 
it's more like a I don't know it's kind of, in a way it's kind of like catharsis for my own trauma in that I feel like I'm I'm doing justice to the to the experience I went through in some ways by trying to prevent that from happening to others but I think I think whether you've had a negative experience or not I think there's so much so much to be taken from stripping back your ego and acknowledging that happiness is more important than material goods it's more important than flashy things where what restaurants you go to what holidays you go on what house you're in what car you drive and the ability to to help other people the ability to be happy in your day-to-day life and be available for other people is more important than most ego-driven ventures really and Mm. i used to be so financially tradition notion traditional notions of success driven when i left school that i lost well not that i lost sight i almost never had sight of it before that but it, it made it harder for me to to come to terms with that but my first november campaign showed me that one things can be done whereas previously i just didn't think anyone any one individual could have a significant impact on anything and i'm not saying that i have had a significant impact in the grand scheme of things but i've had a significant impact in small social circles and i'd like to have a more significant impact in the future that's something that i'm proud of but it's something that i also feel that i've i've worked for and i'm lucky to have gone through the experience that i have i mean it's a strange thing to say that i'm fortunate for having attempted suicide but ultimately i've lived to tell a tale i view this as round two and some people might not get a round two some people are already living their own version of round two in whether i mean whether it's a result of suicide whether it's a result of different trauma whether it's a result of whatever anything i can do to help bring people on board to the perspective that i think is massively helpful in that i've i've learned the importance of certain things in my own life and basically just putting happiness first yeah. um the more people i can try and bring on side with that the more of a, a ripple effect impact i can have and the frustrating thing sometimes is that, as you said the process is very the process is very rewarding and it's a creative project for me almost that's that's what that's what I enjoy most about this is I didn't really enjoy the spontaneity of the forty nine hour thing because I kind of threw it together so last minute there was no there was no bartering there was no process there was no ups and downs along the way where I mean for example I had someone pull basically the day the morning of my run from Lot Loman to Edinburgh I had the person that was paying for the camera crew pull out that morning so that was twelve hundred quid that either yeah i then had i i I had to fork out so the first three hours of my run i was just thinking where on earth am i going to get 1200 quid from because there's no way in which i can find another brand that's going to give me that much money because i can't now instruct the camera crew to focus on the elements that that brand are after um but again like that's part of the creative process and it's something that i've learned is going to happen so now i'm better prepared for when it next does um but the reward the reward always lies in the fact that i'm i'm learning as i go i'm learning what not what's best for other people that sounds ridiculously ignorant of other people's wants desires but what what the best way what are the best way of communicating the things that i want to communicate and how can i frame them in different ways to try and bring people to try and shift people's perspective because ultimately i'm not qualified in any way i'm just a bloke who was perceived as a figure of strength who went through an incredibly negative experience and I've learned a lot along the way. I'd like to share what I've learned, but I'm not qualified to give solutions. All I want to do is provoke thought and the more thoughts that I can provoke in people, the more conversations they might have. 
And it's kind of, I used this example with someone the other day, it's kind of like the, the rate of infection with COVID in that we want to be below one. But I mean, if one conversation that happens with another person can then spread to, let's say, six people per person, then all of a sudden we're having a really tangible, serious impact because superficial conversations can go an enormously long way. Yeah, I, I know the power of it for me personally. I know the power of it for my friendship group. And it can potentially sound trivial sometimes to say, have a conversation and your mental health will be sorted. It's not that simple, but it is a fantastic starting point and there's a lot of people that are still resistant to that even as a concept. So the reward for me is just seeing seeing more people come on side with the openness of it. And I, I've had a few wrestles with myself recently whether what the tipping point is for financial investment emotional and physical investment in terms of the actual reach in terms of literally because i mean brands look at social media followings now that's how marketing kind of works sadly i mean in traditional days brands would buy in on merit i mean there was more cash kicking about back in the day as well marketing budgets were much higher my, my goal now is to try and reach more people and i've had to really consider am i comfortable putting myself through this to such an extent if i'm not going to be reaching people at the same rate the, the sort of the growth that i'm implementing myself whether that growth is going to come in terms of the people that I reach as well and I am I think I ultimately am comfortable with it because it's important to me I've seen the impact it can have and ultimately if it prevents one person from taking the decision to end their own life then it's been a success and it's worth however many months of work how many hours of suffering because I'm lucky enough to have lived through that but not everyone might be What a legend Fergus is. Again, a massive thank you to him for coming on the podcast and taking some time during lockdown to have that conversation. I know he is doing some incredible things at the moment as well. So if you haven't checked out his social media platforms, I would urge you to do that. Whilst you're doing it, at Why in the World Pod, that is our Instagram. And we'll be back in another two weeks with a brand new episode.